Greetings, people of the planet Earth, and welcome to another episode of The Evolved Idiots. Today, I'll be speaking with Bo Roberts, an actor, a writer, a director, a producer, a model, one of the 50 sexiest men alive, a former law enforcement officer, and a former MMA cage fighter. He's had a long and varied story, and I welcome him to the podcast. I'm really glad your your people reached out, um, you know, because when I I, di- I didn't know exactly who who you were, you know, but when I started looking into your background, um, you know, you're a pretty interesting guy um, to be uh, the Hollywood kind of, uh, you know, st- you're not necessarily the ho- Hollywood stereotype. I, I would say, you know, your background's pretty interesting, and um, you know, so let's let's kind of start out there a little bit. You know, I kind of wanted to ask, you know, you grew up in a a small town. I grew up in a, in a pretty small town in Tennessee, not too terribly far away from the region where you grew up at the border of uh, Kentucky and Indiana. Um, what was it like? Um, you know, if I understand correctly, there was a family business and, uh, what was it like kind of breaking away from the small town cycle of life? I know that growing up where I was from, it seemed like there was a cycle and by, you know, 30 years old, you were married and had a job you were going to be at for 30 years and, and, and your life was set. <laughs> and I think societies were, were evolving. That's not necessarily there. That kind of job um, security is not there for most people anymore as well. But, you know, I think that's still a predominating. I know that for me, a lot of my family and friends back home don't really understand what I'm even doing uh, in, in, in life most of the time, it feels like. So, um, just talk a little bit, if, if you can, or, or tell me a little uh, what it was like, you know, kind of breaking out of that cycle and, and doing something different. Gotcha. Yeah. So breaking out of the home life cycle, um, uh, you know, it goes without saying um, I was about to be introduced to a whole new world with uh, a lot of things that, you know, I could expect coming and a lot of things I, I didn't see coming. But yeah, so my family owns a truck driving company back in Indiana. And yeah, it was, you know, my life had a very set form uh, format to it. And then uh, I up and moved down to Florida and um, about an hour south of Tampa Bay is a place called Sarasota and has, uh, what was it, the, the beach? It's not like a granite type of sand it's more of a quartz so it's very soft very powdery and it's actually on what like the top five or top 10 best beach in the world so the place that you know i decided to move to i'm like oh it's comfortable but the nickname for it is a uh, heaven's waiting room uh which is pretty crass and kind of mean but um that that does paint kind of an idea of kind of what what the vibe of the town is like. So it's like a nice, peaceful, relaxed uh, beach community. Um, but yeah, so moved there and that's when, you know, it, it's like all of a sudden, all my friends, all my family, um, everything I've known is back in Indiana. And now I'm here alone, but with my uh, girlfriend in Florida. And then um, once I, got wrapped up into print modeling and all of that stuff. Uh, we moved to South Beach, Miami, which is like the, the frat house of the country. It was insane. Um, and then uh, we broke up when uh, I moved to New York. 
So it went from me having everything, friends, family, life, stability. Now I'm in Florida, but uh, I'm with her and she has her friends and uh, people uh, she cares about. But then just the two of us went to South Beach and now I went to New York. Now I'm completely alone. And then um, I went to Europe for uh, fashion weeks and um, uh, went to Milan and felt like staying there for the full uh, three months. And so I did that because I felt like that was kind of my journey of being self-reliant. Like, okay, I've taken all of these micro steps and now, now I'm living like truly alone in a foreign country where uh, I can kind of make sense of the news and I can ask who, what, when, where, why, but I don't really speak the, the language, but I'm here and I have to learn how to function and, you know, make sense of stuff. So that was kind of my experience on branching out was instead of kind of fearing it and really taking that step and then just kind of shelling up, like I just see that I kept going out more and more until I'm in a country not familiar to me. I don't know the language and um, I, I don't have friends that can drive, you know, three hours to come and help me even. So it's, you know, yeah, it was pretty cool. Was there initially when you decided to to leave and go to go to Florida, what um, was there was there pressure at that time to like kind of fall in line and, and stay in the family business or or was everybody like, you know, go out, conquer the world and very supportive? It, it, was, uh, it was more supportive. Um, yeah, because my reason for moving to Florida was because of the, the person I met. Uh, she, she was in Florida. So uh, of course my, my mom was like, Oh, it, it might be someone who's going to wind up getting married to. So, you know, she, she loved and hated the idea of it. And, um, my dad, he was e equally as supportive. So yeah, it was actually a very supportive thing to like, all right, go off and do this. And, you know, we're with you on it. Um, but yeah, of course, you know, it's just, whenever there's a, a moment for me to fly back home and see uh, friends and family, you know, of course that's at the forefront of my list of priorities just because, yeah, like I, I, I got out and I have a career and a job in the realm of what I really enjoy doing, but, you know, balancing that, like being here in Los Angeles and not, you know, right next to a bunch of people I grew up with, you know, that, that definitely tugs at me time to time. Yeah, I, I, I was smiling a bit because uh, I, I can relate to moving uh, to a different city for a, for a girl. Um, <laughs> I think we've all had our stories there, but that's that's very interesting. So, yeah, so you you were in Florida and then, uh, you know, you kind of got into modeling down there and, and, and in Miami, I guess. And then um, what is that world like? Just the, the modeling world, I, I mean, from. I think people maybe have seen like, I don't know, entourage kind of shows or, or t next top models. And that's kind of everybody's perception of it. But what is that? What is that world? What is that like uh, from your experience? So the world of modeling based on my experience was very enjoyable. Um, the, the way I got into it was I moved down to Florida and of course, now income is something I'm thinking about. And 
I had like a very basic job keeping score at um, adult league basketball games and volleyball games and doing that. And um, I, I've always been good at saving money. So, you know, had some early retirement money mixed with this very basic job. And then um, uh, some of uh, her friends would ask me, it's like, hey, why don't you get in modeling? Have you thought of that? And it, that conversation kept coming up and I, I just thought they were being complimentary. And then I uh, actually got fully trained, handed the gear and showed up to work on my first day being a door-to-door Kirby vacuum cleaner salesman. <laughs> and um, I, I saw this guy um, that I, I'd be kind of partnered with and we would go hit up the houses and I said, Hey, so uh, I was informed that these people called Kirby. They reached out mm. to Kirby and said, Hey, we, uh, I'm going to give this thing a test drive before I drop, you know, $1,500 on a vacuum cleaner. Uh, can I test it out? And the guy responded, he said, no, man, like it's a straight up cold call. <laughs> Probably about 90% of people were just going to slam the door in your face. And I'm like, all right. So I went and I turned everything in said thanks but no thanks it's not for me and then i went home and said hey honey how do i get in into this whole print model stuff so <laughs> for me it was sell vacuum cleaners door to door or going to modeling so that that's what put me into it and um yeah for me it's like you know i i spent uh, about three and a half years in law enforcement and around you know, you know, four years, uh, training for like, uh, and, you know, did some, uh, cage fighting stuff. And, um, so for me, it's like, I'm not six two, uh, which is like optimal male model height, but, you know, I would take my shirt off and people would freak out. So that was, you know, that's how I made money. Uh, so for me, it was awesome because all of a sudden everybody I'm being paired with you know, it's like has a kind of a, a similar aesthetic. And then like the, the women I'm being paired with is all of these jocks, you know, that, you know, we're on a scholarship playing softball or playing volleyball or what have you. So um, I, I'm hanging out with, you know, these uh, sporty chicks that, you know, it's just, they're very cool, very down to earth to where they grew up being athletic versus like the high fashion models that the, the fashion suits I've been on and I've interacted with girls that, you know, they aspired to become a model. Those are the times that I'm like, Oh, you have kind of a diva thing going on. And, you know, there's some, some stuff going on, but like the, the girls, um, you know, back to it that are just beautiful and toned and fit from playing athletics. They're like, yeah, same as you, you're a fighter. So you're in shape and here you are. And, I'm athletic. So it, it, that was a very interesting thing. But as far as uh, like how the work is day to day, I actually love being in Manhattan. Um, I truly felt like I, I was part of the machine to where I, I would wake up and I'd have an agent call me every morning and say, hey, uh, we emailed it to you, but this is bas- basically how your day looks. Um, I had a gym membership. Um, at two different gyms that had multiple locations all over Manhattan. <laughs> and the way I would get my cardio in was I would rollerblade all throughout Manhattan. Um, and that's also how I, you know, 
really began falling in love with having a camera in my hand was um, uh, I would do street photography. So I would slow down, take a picture, um, and then I would skate off and continue on to my casting. So, um, I, you know, it's like on this day, I have five castings. So just skate from point A to point B, and that's my day. And then on this day, I only have three castings with a two-hour gap here. So in my satchel, I always kept a pair of swim goggles and a pair of Speedos. And so if I have two hours, all of a sudden, wherever I am in the city, I would find the nearest gym that I go, that um, I'm a member of that has a swimming pool. And then I would just go in, swim laps for about an hour, grab lunch, head off to next casting. And, you know, it, it just, I got into this rhythm of having I don't know, like 15 castings per week, um, you know, shoots uh, that are paid, but then you do this shoot to uh, update your book. And um, then I, I'm also going to acting school. And then um, I began going to the uh, Broadway Dance Center um, and, you know, studied uh, uh, theatrical performance dance for uh, a short stint. And yeah, it's just constantly going, constantly doing something, which when I think of New York, you know, a city that never sleeps, I'm like, I took full advantage of it. Like every second of every day, like I, I had something going on. So, um, yeah, that, and as far as the, uh, what you might see on entourage, yeah. Um, you definitely have that night scene to where uh, all of a sudden the promoters that go to like nightclubs, they're inviting me just to have me, you know, hang out at their table with them and party down with them. And it's, you know, kind of a, I guess, whole, whole uh, eye candy thing that, comes into play there but to me it's like whatever is being like the hottest place to be in manhattan you know i'm like i'm walking past the line going in the front door and you know having a couple cocktails for free so i'm like yes yeah, yeah I'm, i'd agree to that just stand around and hang out <laughs> yeah that's a that's a pretty sweet gig to to be able to to be able to do that um, how does that, how does that sort of feel like to be, does that, does that make you feel, uh, does that feel uncomfortable to, to be kind of, you know, eye candy like that? Does it make you, I don't know. I'm a little bit, uh, probably, probably bashful, you know, I've obviously not, a not one of the 50 sexiest men alive, but <laughs> you know, what's that, what does, how does that make you feel like, uh, in, in that respect? Um, shy. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it, and it's a very interesting thing to where um, I've been hyper athletic my entire life, ranging from you know um, senior year of high school, I was captain of, of um, football, wrestling, track, baseball, mascot at basketball games, volleyball manager, youth baseball coach, um, uh, middle school wrestling coach. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm very used to being center stage and, you know, giving like uh, a speech at halftime or what have you. But yeah, once people started complimenting me and stuff and, you know, initially like, okay, this first big publication came out with, with me on the cover of it and all of the complimentary and over complimentary messages that came in on like Facebook that uh, I was okay with. But then, um, you know, I began getting noticed in public and people would come up and ask to take a photo with me. And I didn't know how to react. I'm like, yeah, yeah, man, sure. And, but, you know, so that it, it was very, 
to me, uh, like, uh, of course, uh, I loved it because it's like, oh, so people actually, right. you know, really are following me because uh, I, I felt like I was doing a good job and, you know, that, okay, I'm making progress, but then to actually get stopped on the sidewalk so someone can take a selfie and like, oh, I met Bill Roberts today. And I'm like, that's, <laughs> that's a, a pretty big honor in my books. But yeah, when, when people kind of would compliment me, uh, public uh, publicly at i don't know let's say a party or something that's when i show up and you know i start feeling kind of bashful so yeah 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 interesting you mentioned you know about your your sports background so did you did you do the cage fighting before you were in law enforcement or vice versa um vice versa but also concurrently so shortly after i got into law enforcement um someone who's a great friend of mine um and and sorry sorry to interrupt but we're and can you say what time what period of time were you still in indiana at this time yes uh yeah so i I was in indiana when i went into law enforcement and that was around when i was maybe 20 to 21 years old and um but yeah and then that's when i met my my friend tim and he was already um training and actually had a upcoming fight against a collegiate wrestler and they heard that I passed on uh, collegiate authors because uh, I graduated high school and was talking to scouts from like the St. Louis Cardinals and the Braves. So for baseball, I'm like, Oh, there's definite money there for wrestling. You know, eh, there's not too much of a, a future in it. Right. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, so uh, he's about to fight a collegiate wrestler. So I'm like, yeah, you know, I, I can jump in and, you know, spar with you and stuff like that. And then that's what, you know, got me hooked because uh, the whole uh, baseball stuff didn't quite pan out. You know, I just can't throw the ball quite as fast as what they wanted me to. So, mm-hmm. um, Were you a pitcher? Um, yeah, but I'm left-handed. So for me, it was mm-hmm. my speed. Um, I, I had a 4-2-40 in football. Um, when I would bunt the ball, I was consistently trying that touching first base 90 feet in 3.2 seconds. Um, so speed was my gift. So uh, the scouts looked at me to be a pinch base runner with the aspiration that, oh, we can also put him in, you know, left field and, um, you know, do that. But since, uh, you know, taking a big throw hop and throwing it, I, I could only throw it maybe 90, which sounds impressive. But that's like a, when a pitcher is standing still and they throw the ball and it goes 90. That's impressive. Uh, I'm talking about like I would take two to three running steps, put all my momentum behind it. So when you watch a right fielder throw the ball, it, it might get up to 110. <laughs> Who knows? Wow. Like it's blistering fast. Yeah. So uh, so that's what knocked me out. And and at that time, I'm like, I'm still young and able and I want to be competitive and like, I, I want to do something. So meeting Tim and sparring with him, I'm like, oh yeah, this, this feels good. I, I'm into it. So then that kind of kicked off that whole thing. And then once I really got more in, um, into uh, modeling, I decided being punched in the face is bad for, <laughs> bad for business. So, um, so in South Beach, I couldn't really connect with um, um, kind of a fight team because you have uh, American top team, but they're like right. an hour outside of the city. And I'm like, 
I'm not doing it professionally, so I'm not going to drive that far for it. But then once I went to New York, um, I found like a, a, a flight school and, you know, would train and spar. And then once I moved out to uh, Los Angeles and met my beautiful bride, she, um, she had this office right next to a fight gym. And that's what kind of reintroduced me to fighting out in Los Angeles. And um, so I got back to training kickboxing, Thai fighting, and um, and jujitsu, uh, and actually began competing in uh, tournaments for jujitsu. And then COVID took that away. <laughs> yeah, I, my and Mike, uh, Mike's uh, obviously if you if you've listened to any of the other shows, Mike's a, 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 a martial arts uh, coach and trainer. And so uh, I'm very familiar with how COVID impacted and the little uh, workarounds that many of the uh, those that are very dedicated to their martial arts, um, you know, they got creative, let's say, to uh, keep sharp while while COVID was happening. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I get it. So this was absolutely not during lockdown. So this it's definitely outside of lockdown. But a um, yeah, so for me. I continued training, but just with one person that I'm like, sure. okay, I, I go here, I go home. We're being as safe as we possibly can. Um, are, are you on board with that? And we shook hands that, yeah, we're not training with anybody else. Yeah. Uh, we're very cautious to have a mask on everywhere. And we, and we both essentially work from home. So we um, we kept training together. And then it got to the point that, um, he said, Hey, so uh, I'm giving you a heads up. I I'm going to start uh, training with other people and uh, I'm going to see how you feel about it. And I was like, well, thanks for the heads up, but I'm out. So, <laughs> uh, and that was back in 2020. And I'm just now like officially gone the, the itch back to just jump back into it. So, um, like I, I, I you know, I've been doing workouts to kind of precondition my body to, you know, be, litany of things that just tire uh you out when you train yeah do you uh do you prefer the the jujitsu to the to the thai kickboxing those are the or, or do you do any other any other styles besides that disciplines um well i wrestled for seven years so that's definitely my base um and for me um thai fighting it it really complements it because uh, I have the confidence to get dirty and throw some knees and elbows and get close to them. Cause if you know, the worst thing you can do is tie me up. Now you're doing exactly what I want. <laughs> and then uh, jujitsu, that's what gave me uh, true balance to where like I was excellent at getting people on the ground. And then once I get to the ground, I'm athletic and kind of uh, crafty enough. Um, cause for me, like I'm really big on being a counter fighter. So, um, you know, like I would create the world and the situation to where I would have two to three low risk, uh, moves that I cycle through. So I'm constantly working and doing something. And, but the whole time I'm waiting on them to do something because the two to three moves I'm doing, I know if you, you know, if you try and counter this move. I know the counter to your counter. So the moment you begin doing it, I start doing that counter. And by the time your brain acknowledges that you're being countered, 
you stop, try and back out. Well, I've already completed the move. So for me, counter fighting is really what I'm into. And jujitsu, it yeah, it just completely changed my my entire mentality. It's such a humbling experience to be, you know, like 185 pounds, bench pressing over 300 pounds in reps, and then you just get ragdolled by like 130 pound girl and it's just like there's nothing you can do just because she knows exactly you know what to do when to do it and it's just oh so strength doesn't matter so that really taught me you know like oh so now i only rely on technique Hmm. and then if i'm back into a corner that's when you know i can let my uh wrestling mentality to where um i work at a very frantic pace because that turned into my comfort zone but if you're not used to sprinting as hard as you can then that's going to be uncomfortable for you so to my opponent they're not comfortable with it but i am so now it's like i you know use my finesse when possible and yeah what does uh what does what's your what's your typical you know outside of even the martial arts just kind of thinking about what it's like to to maintain a a Hollywood physique, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, I imagine a lot of discipline and, um, you know, hard work, but I'm sure some genetics as well help obviously. Um, but what's, what's it, what's it like for you typically to kind of maintain that? Because for those, you know, we haven't really talked about it yet, but you were, you were in 300 rise of an empire. It was a very, let's, let's just be honest. Every, every guy in that movie was like, uh, you know, peak physique pretty much. Um, and it was, and, and so what is it like to, to get to that point for a movie like that? And then, you know, do you maintain that throughout or do you kind of like back off the gas a little bit and, and, and have a slightly different routine, you know, when you're not preparing for something like that? Gotcha. So, um, uh, Prepping for uh, 300 uh, specifically, uh, I actually came into the game late. Um, I recently moved to Los Angeles, and my my friend called me up and said, "Hey, they're uh, they need more Spartans because they film like in Australia and parts of Europe and Canada. You know, just collecting tax credits along the way and come back to Los Angeles to finish." So uh, I was on set for about maybe uh, three weeks with them. Um, so for me, like I, I was already kind of in the shape that they needed for it. Uh, for me, it was just working as a print model was one thing, but when you work as a print model, that's, uh, you know, known for, well, like what face, but, um, a lot of stuff online is me, you know, jumping around in a speedo and underwear and stuff like that. So it's like, well, I have to make sure, you know, when a shoot comes up, I have to be full already, basically twenty four seven. So I do have a um, like a one week procedure to get me like really shredded and uh, camera ready. Um, and but that's more for like a shoot because you can maintain it for like two days, and after that, the pendulum swings back. And so what my uh, routine would be for like a a, a big photo shoot was. That, um, like let's say seven days out, I am taking in large amounts of sodium. Like I want my body to retain as much water as humanly possible because I view my body as a 
as a um, survival machine. It's not, you know, like, oh, let's look good and get ripped and all this stuff. That's, yeah, I'm like, yeah, that's your ego talking. But if you really break it down, your body's built to survive and think of it as a highly advanced speed of uh, evolving. You know, like if you keep doing cardio, you keep, you know, increasing your cardio. And if you keep trying to move this weight, eventually you can. So for me, I'm going to retain as much water as possible because my body has a natural balance. So tons of salt, uh, tons of water. And then, um, you know, after two days, I cut out all of the salt. So now my body begins expelling water, but at an accelerated rate because it's trying to find that balance again. Mm -hmm. So as that happens, that's when I begin drinking a gallon of water the next day, half a gallon, quarter gallon. Meanwhile, my body's still expelling water at a very accelerated pace, but I'm not putting as much water back into it. And then with my carbs, I reverse it. So seven days out, um, I go absolutely zero carb and just completely let my body run out of carbs. So it's like starved for it. And then once I get two days out, I have some carbs. And then the day before the shoot, I'll actually maybe have some pasta because what happens my muscles are, you know, starving for nutrients. So the moment I put carbs in my body and work out, it pumps the muscles up. It really inflates them. So that's the way I would inflate the muscle. Meanwhile, my body's expelling water at an accelerated pace. And the day before the shoot, I just, I have a couple ice cubes. Like I'm not even trying to drink water. And then the day of the shoot, I could even have red wine to further like dehydrate. So the skin gets, you know, really sucked in and really pulled and stretched uh, around the muscle. And the muscle now has a lot of uh, fuel in it. So it's fully pumped up. So, you know, that's kind of my, the secret I came up with. I, uh, I was wanting to know how to do stuff like that better. So I studied the American College of Sports Medicine. It's uh, like a type of personal training you can do. And I studied that just so I would know how to, you know, how my body operates better. And from that, I've learned, you know, that sodium and that hard trick. So, um, yeah, so that, that would be me prepping for a one day photo shoot. But, you know, obviously you can't sustain that because right. two, two, two days after the photo shoot, now it's like, now my body is like, oh, we're really dehydrated. So the pendulum comes back and you retain water and you do all of that. So that, that's why, you know, for me, I, I don't want to do a lot of back-to-back -back, uh, like shirtless photo shoots because when that pendulum's coming back, I'm like, it's, I, I can't keep the water off because my body needs to reset. So what do you, what do you normal like, what's your, not preparing for a shoot, like what's your regular kind of routine just to kind of stay in, in a, a, you know, an everyday kind of position to where you can turn on that seven days if you need to. Um, well, uh, I would, I would like to get back to kind of the pre COVID mindset I had to where I would wake up and before I would have breakfast on Monday, Wednesday and Friday, I would take off and I would go do uh, kickboxing um, for an hour. Fasted? Yeah. And then after that, uh, uh, jujitsu for an hour. 
uh, immediately after. And then I come home, have breakfast, take care of emails and Mark and so on and so forth. And then uh, it would be more in the evening. So around 5 p.m., that's when I'd go into the gym and, and uh, lift heavy. And then on Tuesday and Thursday, that's when I would have the two and a half to three hours of just straight jiu-jitsu in the evening. But then um, I would also have an hour of kickboxing before that. So then I'd flip it to where Tuesday and Thursday, I would wake up and uh, fasted. That's when I'd work out, come home, have breakfast. And then do um, bike training more in the evening, and then weekends. You know, I typically take off and just you know go on a jog, something like that. So yeah, yeah, interesting, interesting. What um, what kind of what kind of you know we, we t- you touched on it there very briefly about being in in law enforcement. Um, do you have uh, what are your thoughts on or do you have any thoughts or maybe it's something you don't want to talk about <laughs> even because it's a touchy subject? But um, what do you do you have any any thoughts from your based on your experience on like what maybe we can do to make both? Uh, I don't know. I guess it depends on your perspective, but maybe uh, make their jobs both easier and uh, and 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 you know, to, to make them maybe more efficient. I think we've seen some, some inefficiencies and some, some issues with, with law enforcement over, over the last few years, um, in the country. Um, just kind of want if, if you don't have any thoughts, that's fine as well. <laughs> no, definitely. Um, ways that I, I would say, you know, we could improve the law enforcement uh, situation. Um, like I, I immediately disagreed with the whole defund the police uh, mantra that came out in like 2020. Um, I, and I worked in law enforcement. So, and I took a lot, so much pride in being the good cop. With that being said, um, I did work with uh, some bad cops that I'm like, you shouldn't be one. But then also uh, just to, you know, since we're kind of going more on that deep dive, there is a third type of cop. I've acknowledged, but I've never heard it be acknowledged anywhere else. And if we bring up the whole, um, uh, what's his name, Chauvin, um, mm. the, uh, you know that 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 whole case with uh, George Floyd, that's where you have Chauvin. I would say he's a bad cop. What he what he was doing, and then everybody else. If you look at them in the background, like they're slack jawed and they're on their heels. So they're not bad cops, but it's that third type of officer to where you're you're a good person, but you shouldn't be an officer because you have to make split second choices. And what's happening? Go left or go right. Well, if you freeze, then that's a major red flag that you should not do it. So, you know, you have this officer that's clearly doing something that's wrong. And but he's a high ranking officer um in that situation from what i remember so all of those subordinates are standing around like this doesn't feel right (laughs) but they don't have that that gear within them to say no like pull him off we we have to stop this so i'm like so then i'm like you're more of a, a bystander uh so that's just kind of my two cents on that but the the way that you know we could improve the situation in my opinion is not defunding the police, but actually investing more into 
the police infrastructure and not necessarily uh, pay increase and so on and so forth. But to me, if you have an outside source that comes in um, to, you know, take part in the meetings, have access to certain uh, confidential things that it's like, you know, in, inside the department, you know, so it's more like think of it as kind of an HR position that goes into law enforcement and give them more access uh, to where they, they can view things. And, um, you know, so I, I definitely see a lot of good coming from it because then it's, you know, like every great leader, um, when they have a meeting, there is somebody sitting at that table that they want to be at the table because they hardly ever agree with them. It gives them a new perspective. It gives them ideas and things they haven't uh, thought of before. So, you know, that could be a way to think of this HR person that have access. But with that being said, uh, I believe social media has really kind of put a terrible spin on everything to where, um, like, there's one video in particular that um, I was on Facebook, and now you don't have to hit play. You just hover over a video, plays. auto plays. So, you know, you go and that, it hovered long enough. Two seconds into it, here's some white cops slamming some uh, black teenage girl to the ground. And it's such a, a violent, you know, interaction and people screaming and it's like, get back. And, you know, it's a, it's a very, you know, intense moment. And that's how you're introduced to this situation. It's just with that, that type of violence. But when I actually found the source video, you have about, you know, 10 minutes of the officer saying, no, you're under arrest. This is happening. Turn around and put your hands behind your back. And that's when it comes into this thing of like, um, at what point, you know, is, you know, is the person interacting with the officer? Like, when are they being, um, you know, what, bad or, you know, not non-cooperative enough uh that would justify the officer getting hands on and when he did he did it the proper way he you know grabbed her by the elbow um because apparently the elbow is the only place you can grab somebody and there is no way it can be considered uh, sexual assault interesting so, <laughs> yeah so fun fact so so you know he grabbed her by the elbow went into soft body contact and began trying to turn her around saying no you're under arrest and, you know, she recoils and pushes him off. And that push, that's, that motion, that is a striking motion. Now, yeah, yeah you're, you're, you're just creating distance, getting him off of you, whatever. But, you know, it's like you're told that you're under arrest. If you do not comply with things after that, then it's like, at what point are you being the jerk and this and that? It's like, no get arrested, go, and then, you know, talk to the judge. And then that opens that entire can of worms about unfair punishments on, you know, it's, you know, it's like, um, if somebody's black and if they're caught with weed, um, what is their punishment going to be versus, um, some white person that's arrested with the same amount of weed. So, you know, it, it, it's such a long, <laughs> uh, almost a, a paradox of like, such a sticky situation um but you know with that being said that's why i think you know having this third party you know hr type of mentality kind of interjecting and you know making sure that okay 
uh, this judge, what's his track record in, you know, handing stuff out? Is it biased in one way or another? And what adjustments need to be made? So, yeah, it's a very sticky situation. And uh, I think that's uh, social media, you know, it's just, it's all about getting them views. So let's get to the most violent thing that we can put on that's going to push this narrative and the storyline. And that's what you're going to see within two seconds of this thing auto playing that you didn't even request that, you know, have in front of you. So, yeah, yeah, it's tough. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, you touched on it on, on, on cannabis there. And, and so, you know, that's sort of my, my field uh, to some extent, that's my industry that I work in. And so I've, I've, you know, be honest, I've had some not so great experiences with law enforcement over the years. And uh, so it's, it's, I, I know where people are coming from when they, when they talk about, you know, having, having these difficulties. And I think there is some definitely some, some issues within law enforcement culturally that need to change. Police unions have a lot of, have a lot of uh, power and influence in, in communities. Um, but I also think that it's a very difficult job and they get asked to do a lot of things that maybe they shouldn't even have on their plate. Um, you know, homelessness is a huge issue in LA alone. And, you know, I, you know, I don't know if, if the police are the best people to handle that. Maybe, maybe we should have social workers going with a police officer to handle those situations. I, I don't know the answer. I'm, I'm obviously just, you know, I just like to have conversations with people and see if we come up with a decent idea and maybe somebody listening goes, Hey, that's a decent idea. Like, you know, I heard uh, I heard Jocko uh, talking about this uh, a long time, uh, been a while back. I don't know if you're familiar with Jocko Wilnick. Uh, he lives uh, down in San Diego. He's a former Navy SEAL and runs a, a leadership uh, uh, organization down there now, um, along with some other things. Um, but he's got a podcast on leadership. And, and he was like, you know, for, for the best thing that they could do is just have every law enforcement officer have to do jujitsu is like, it'll just, it'll train them. They'll know how to handle themselves in, in close combat situations. They won't panic in those situations because they've already been in every situation. And, you know, obviously I'm, I'm, I'm not attached to law enforcement myself, but I've definitely seen a few uh, law enforcement uh, officers that it looks like they've not been in the gym for a while. <laughs> so uh, some, maybe, maybe, maybe there's some truth to that. I don't know. So um, a, a few things I'd love to touch on, and um, it, it was kind of going in the direction of, you know, what officers uh, may have to deal with and what they shouldn't have to deal with. Um, just so people are, you know, just so it's out there. Um, whenever I first went into training, before you learn how to handcuff somebody, Miranda Rice, but before you learn anything, you watch a movie and it's 20 minutes long ish. Um, and it's just one routine traffic stop after another. But at the end of every traffic stop, you have to watch an officer get murdered on camera. And at, and at the end of it, they say, this is a situation you might have to deal with. This truck didn't signal when it made a right hand turn. So the officer pulled him over as he's walking up to it. The guy exits his truck with an uh, assault rifle and just puts rounds on him. And you hear the officer screaming 
for his life and, you know, begging for him to stop. And, and then you see the guy just come, you know, tapping twice, like right in front of the camera, peacefully walk back to his truck, just drive away. And so, you know, there, there's this thing when, you know, it's like, um, it's very much mentality, but hope for the best, expect the worst. So for teaching jujitsu in that situation, I'm all for it because, yeah, I've worked with a lot of officers that I'm like, you can't handle yourself in a fight. You have no idea what you're doing and you're going to gas out in 10 seconds. So you, 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 you need to work on it. But then, um, you know, to me, there's also that, uh, this mentality that if somebody is going to be violent with the police, I'm like, that's a major red flag. And, uh, and, and it goes back to it. It's like, oh, let's try and solve this um, peacefully. Uh, I'm all for it if it can happen, if someone's, you know, having a, a, a moment. But, um, yeah, it's, it, it is interesting because, you know, like I've experienced it. And um, uh, what was it like? This, this dude came in. He was drunk. And, um, and, uh, and I work in a detainment facility and put him through the questions. I'm like, hey, man, so go ahead, put your hands on the table, state your name. Uh, are you sick? Are you feeling suicidal? You know, blah, 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 whatever. And the relationship I had with him, it was, you know, going very standard quo and, you know, whatever. And then he just turned and just spit right in my face. And uh, I'm like, all right, that's not cool. Um, so in those moments, uh, I'm like that when someone chooses to be violent or do something like that, which, you know, if he has hepatitis, all of a sudden, that's like essentially chemical warfare. You could have infected me for life with it. But, um, you know, that that's when it's like, how do you respond? Is it going to be doing a hard takedown to the ground and, you know, like really putting your weight on his neck and really just controlling the situation? Or, you know, what I chose to do, I'm like, not cool. Just, you know, grab him by his elbow put him in a, um, in a cell by himself and said, all right, just stay there for four hours. Uh, I'll talk to you in a bit. So, you know, even if you learn jujitsu, it goes back to that third type of officer that when you have this knee jerk reaction, do you like, did you wake up and choose violence today? Cause like if somebody does something, it, he just spent my face and I'm like, well, you know, if, if he infected me, that's done, but he's not like, coming at me trying to hurt me so my reaction wasn't to you know punch him in the face or tackle him or you know something like that so yeah it's great that you know he's really pushing people to learn jujitsu because it is a wonderful way to um handle it because most fights go to the ground like what 85 and 90 percent of them um but yeah and then the the second thing you touched on was uh cannabis and my experience on like drugs and substances and X, Y, and Z in law enforcement is that I would have to fight somebody typically one night a week, uh, Friday and Saturday people come in and like, they're, I'm talking about like they're swinging on you. Like they are throwing down and it's me, you know, like I'll have to walk one and then I'll get him and tackle him. And then, you know, a couple officers, uh, dog pile him and then we handcuff him and you know 
putting him in a holding cell. Um, but every person I've ever interacted with that was only high from smoking marijuana and not like uh, not crossfaded, not drunk and right. high, but only marijuana, they walk in. You got me. Uh, <laughs> are we taking pictures or are we doing prints for us or can I have a sandwich? You know, like they're, so for me, uh, I'm like 20 years old. Um, it, it was one of my first jobs after leaving the family company. So now I'm out. Now I'm interacting with like society, law enforcement, serving for tech. And I'm like, yeah, why is weed illegal? But I'm literally having to get hands on drunk people on a daily basis. And uh, you, you can't see it, but right here uh, on my left wrist, um, I'm scarred for life. Uh, you know, still have it to where this guy, he was drunk and uh, he got uh, placed on a wall. And um, Lieutenant had, um, what was it, had his uh, left hand handcuffed. And I went up and grabbed his right wrist and was waiting on the uh, um, right hand to really come back to finish handcuffing him. And then that's when that, you know, bad cop came around the corner and was over eager. And he just sandwiched the guy on the wall. And I'm like, that's unnecessary. But what happened was the the teeth on the handcuff ripped across my wrist. So it was more like friendly fire because I'm here. When he entered the situation just to dogpile somebody for the fun of it, he hit my arm and it dragged the handcuffs across my wrist. Um, so that's a situation where dealing with a bad cop and a drunk person left me scarred <laughs> for life. But anybody that came in from smoking weed, they're like, they would ask me for food. I say no. They're like, okay. And that's it. I mean, what are you going to do at that point? You know, you're, you're caught. The only thing you're going to do at that point, if, if you're in that situation with law enforcement is you're going to make your situation worse. That's, that's the only way it's going to go. It's going to be, get worse. So you, you've done some, you've done some movies, you've uh, obviously done modeling, but you've really gotten into, it, it seems like most recently kind of writing, directing, you know, doing some of your own, own shorts and, and own films and, and that nature. And then you've just released, I think not too long ago, The Great Awakening. And uh, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was filmed during COVID. It was, um, or yeah, during COVID, but it was like very early in 2021. Is is so when it, it, when I'm watching it, they they talked about they mentioned your name actually in the film, and then they talk about how that you've got this project going on where everybody's filming their own independent pieces, and you're putting it to together as a real film. Is that actually how this film was was made? No. Not at all. Okay. <laughs> so, um, what uh, the the detail that you're calling out? Because uh, the movie has a lot of details and gems kind of sprinkled through. So, when I initially started making sense that you know I'm going to shoot a, a full length movie this time, and um, what's it going to be? And I started thinking about like. Um, you know, oh, let's, you know, let's do my COVID movie because uh, I was talking to my wife and she said, yeah, I, I love the, uh, love that you're going to just charge forward and do something. Uh, don't make it about COVID because 
that's what every low budget horror movie is going to be for the next few uh, few years. So I'm like, all right. So I, I'm going to make a movie about COVID. <laughs> and I'm just going to make sense of it. So I, I took I took that as a challenge, and and I started thinking like, um, what's somebody going to do? Um, oh, a haunted house. Uh, you don't want to stay in the haunted house because it's haunted, um, but. You can't leave because of lockdown. Ooh, there is a COVID horror movie. And so I it really started off with me kind of poking fun at the movies. Like, um, have you seen the movie called Scary Movie? That's yeah. the franchise. Yeah. So it's very much on that to where how Scary Movie makes fun of all of these uh, iconic horror movies. I was going to make fun of all of the COVID movies, but do it before they came out. So like, I'm making fun of these COVID movies and, and then they come out and it's like, I gotcha. But, um, but once I made sense that, okay, I need to find a way to, you know, since I'm throwing the kitchen sink at the script, I need to have a way for there to be like a possession of some kind or, you know, something weird happens. So I came up with the idea that, Oh, everybody's going to college online and that's a huge um you know debate because you have these college kids that spend a, a lot of money but they're not having the ability to actually attend in person meet with their professors the way they want so that was a big part of 2020 so i'm like so i'm going to implement that and uh to uh also take care of the possession thing the college that the boyfriend is going to is going to be Bible college. So he's studying to become a priest and that's going to open the door to have some weird possession thing take place. So, um, yeah, so, uh, but the, uh, what the, I guess, essence of the movie is, um, like I, I watched a documentary called nightmares in red, white, and blue. And, um, and watching it, it really, talked about how like in the 50s uh horror movies were all about like the atomic bomb scare um and then in the 60s summer of love drug experimentation uh so a lot of movies had this idea of like this stoner tweaker kidnapping daddy's little angel and that's a horror movie then you have the 70s when like love ran out and it's uh watergate um Vietnam and the country has had a bad taste in its mouth. So ushering movies like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre uh, to kind of match the overall sentiment. So for me, um, instead of thinking about COVID like, oh, uh, let's do a movie where somebody gets COVID or that the virus turns you into a monster or it's locked down all around the world mass, mass enslavement of the human race and you know going down uh those tunnels i'm like what does 2020 really mean to me and to me in one word i would say uncertainty you know uh, covid's inter- introduced lockdown as mentioned um murder hornets are on the news uh, i don't even know what that is why uh, it's on the news but then that vanished the CIA released over 10,000 documents confirming their interactions with UFOs. And that was, was not even trending on social media. We had a very turbulent uh, election year. Um, yeah. So I'm like, 
I have no idea what's going to come next. So to me, uncertainty that encapsulated my emotion from the year 2020. And I, I think it did for a lot of people. So that's why when you watch the movie, um, it's shot in a very specific way to where things happen and you understand what's happening. But the way that I choose to deliver what's happening is completely, you know, off the wall and crazy. So, um, um, yeah. I would, I would say, you, you know, you've, I, I would say you, you're very correct. And it does seem like things escalated quite a bit um, when uh, we were all surprised in 2016. I think the, the, the pace of news and media and, and, you know, it went from a news cycle of, of 24 hours to, you know, an hour or less. And uh, I think that people did feel very uncertain because um, I think there's a lot of motivation to keep people tune, tuning back into the to the news channels, obviously. Um, but, you know, and I think your movie, it definitely makes you feel a little unsettled. Like there's there's, you know, you and I would even argue, though, that you kind of have to pay attention a little bit. Like, I think it's there's a lot of hidden nuances in there. Like, you know, some of the some of the underlying things that were mentioned that I find interesting are the question of like free will versus an all knowing God as if, uh, you know, does that mean pre predetermination that life is uh you know predestined and we can't do anything to change it or do we actually have some some control over over our own lives um i find that very and a very interesting question and in, in the way you handled that as well thank you yeah and that um so in the great awakening uh, there is this moment where uh the lead character uh julia um or Lindsay uh, in the movie but she like you see like her soul leave her body. And um, that that's a very important part of the movie to me because another part of 2020 was, you know, the, the turbulent nature of just that year, but the preceding years that led up to it, how it got more and more divisive. And, uh, and, you know, sadly, I believe we've gone past this point where, you know, we can no longer agree to disagree. And it's like, oh, you think this, I think that that's okay. Um, I, I don't know if that's something this country has the ability to regain. Um, so in the movie, when she's having this moment, like she's going through a tunnel and you see this light at the end of the tunnel. And what does that mean? So that's very specific on like, Okay, to different people, it can mean different things. So to somebody who is religious, they think it's an interaction with God, going to heaven, uh, so on and so forth. To someone who is agnostic or maybe spiritual, it's an out-of-body experience or astral projection. Um, and then to the atheist uh, community, I tie that in with uh, science because it seems like um, more times than not, it goes kind of hand in hand with a lot of things. Um, so in science, they they say that when you have a near-death experience, blood begins draining from the brain. And it's similar to running a car with, with not enough oil in it. It runs yeah. it hard and makes your brain very hard and ragged. And when that happens, it throws your mind into an altered state of consciousness. And now people who have come back from this near-death experience 
they talk about seeing this bright light and felt like they were in a tunnel. So I, I'm like, so you have the belief in God, you're kind of unsure, and you don't believe in God. All three uh, mentalities are experiencing the exact same thing, but they have a very different outlook on it. So for me, I'm like, does that not show everybody that we're all just human trying to rationalize what conscious is, what is reality? We're just, you know, trying to make sense of what's happening around us. So can we just pump the brakes on the aggression and be like, yeah, you think this, I think that, and that's okay. <laughs> so that, that was basically my statement on, you know, pushing that narrative and, well, on screen is probably a pretty convoluted, so I'm not sure he's going to walk away with that thought, but that's, you know, that's the thought that went into it. Well, that's why these these uh, conversations are interesting because it's it's the the behind you know it gives you a little bit of insight into the art itself you know the end result, and I I think leaving it open to interpretation to some extent depending on one's beliefs is is a very uh, is a very good way to do it because and you mentioned this earlier too that the that the the ma main character the guy is in i think bible school seminary school of, of some kind what was the what was the basis um for for really involving religion he heavily into it because you also kind of touch on at one point his very interesting. You know, at one point I'm, I'm watching him talk to his teacher on the phone and his teacher has is sitting at his desk and he has these goat horns and he's on his desk and he's literally speaking and he's framed right between the two goat horns. And the whole time I'm going, man, maybe this guy is is the devil or a demon or something like, you know, what's what's going on with him. But then he comes over later to try. You know, there's there's like this exorcism scene. Um, that doesn't go that that has an interesting result, I will say. Um, what was the basis for having so much of a of a religious context to the storyline? Having a religious context to the storyline, it it all pivots off of the character that uh, Ryan Ruffin uh, brought to the screen. Um, his character Dan, he's going to Bible school and. Uh, back to it. Um, the way the movie was coming to uh, coming to life um, had a very tongue-in-cheek, you know, scary movie dash parody nature about it. But once I turned the boyfriend's role in into studying religion, the entire kind of taste of the movie changed, and it inverted to where now it, it, the movie still has um, a very specific sense of humor that I enjoy. Um, but I'm like, no, let, let's talk about it. Cause back to uncertainty. I think the ultimate question and uncertainty is what happens when we die. Mm -hmm. So, you know, to me, that's the, the grand question. So that's why you have a lot of religious, uh, overtones in it. Cause you know, that, you know, it's really hard to really talk about God and, um, you know, living a good life because of the afterlife, um, so on and so forth without, you know, bringing death into the conversation. So, yeah. So the moment I, you know, changed that role to make sense of this weird possession thing I was going for, that's when 
the jokes kind of stopped and I went actually back to page one and started doing a, an official rewrite. So interesting. So, you know, you talked about, um, you know, the brain, the human brain being, being something that's, you know, can be integral to these kind of experiences and the stressors that are, that are sort of on it have, have uh, what are your thoughts on um, the effects and, and the recent developments when it comes to like psychedelics and whether or not, you know, cause, cause like, I find it kind of interesting looking back on history. There's a, a, a book called, uh, gosh, I can't think of the name, the title of the book, but it's by a gentleman named Brian Marescu. Um, and it's basically about how, um, a lot of, of lot of religious history, it seems like actually had psychedelic elements to it hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago. And we've sort of like forgotten, or at some point we detached that from, from the religious itself as religion evolved. Um, and so sometimes I, I, I wonder, you know, if, if, uh, if there's a connection between that spiritual type of experience and the chemistry and the brain function and the way you described it was very to me kind of kind of similar like it's changing the chemistry you're either de de depriving it of, of of blood or oxygen maybe through a stressful or, or an incident or a physical accident um, versus you know changing the actual chemistry of it through through uh you know, ingestion of, of some type of psychedelic substance um, to to have that sort of experience, because there's a lot of people and I, I've never done it, but I hear a lot of people that talk about, you know, with DMT and stuff, actually having these religious experiences that they don't know any other way to describe it except as religious. And um, I, I don't know, I just find that uh, an interesting thing to sort of contemplate as to whether or not religion came before psychedelics or psychedelics uh, maybe helped give birth to some of our concepts of what religion actually is. Definitely. And yeah, and that that's a very interesting um, tunnel to kind of follow to where it's like, oh, so if these psychedelics, you know, usher in all of these three thoughts and so on and so forth to where it's um, you're having this experience on your own. So you don't need those in charge to tell you what you can and can't do. And all, all of a sudden those in charge are like, Oh, now we have a bunch of free thinkers instead of a bunch of cattle or the news, like to use the word sheep that, you know, that are easily controlled and easily governed. So if we kind of, you know, demonize that, where like they don't want to take it then um you know then that's one way to deter the masses from taking part of it um but most people don't know that um like uh, taking ecstasy that was actually uh if i'm remembering it correctly that was uh developed for marriage counseling like oh you two uh, are having marriage issues take two pills, you'll go home, you'll screw like bunnies, fall madly in love and, you know, and begin healing the relationship. So you have that mentality. And then like when you take uh, mushrooms, I, you know, I've interacted with people at like parties that told me that they were on shrooms. And I'm like, that's, that seems like a horrendous idea. You know, to me, it's like, I, I can never do that because um, when you take mushrooms, it it allows your brain to reach a memory from a different um, 
vantage point. So like, let's say if you have a memory of being a young child and your father is always upset, get on to you and um, kind of you know, rough on you. And he was never in a good mood and X, Y, and Z. So you go through your life and you grow up having this mentality that your dad was kind of a prick, right? Um, but then if you take mushrooms and if you're with the right company that can walk you through that journey and allow you to examine the situation, all of a sudden you're like, oh, he's not a prick. He he was a guy that was doing the best with what he could. He wasn't home as often as he wanted to be. Um, so the small amount of time he had with his children, he used as uh, as parenting moments. He was being a parent instead of trying to be the kid's best friend, giving them ice cream and a bunch of stuff you know they don't need. So his priority was to be a parent that raised a, a good child. And he was working himself and overworking himself to provide for that family. So all of a sudden, you can begin approaching that same type of, um, you know, less than happy father figure. But you're approaching it from a vantage point that now includes uh, compassion and and a certain new new lens that you're seeing that memory from. So that's something that you know uh, mushrooms can help you do. But then if you take mushrooms and then you go into a nightclub with pulsing lights and, you know, people, Hey man, how's your night going? You know, <laughs> like, like, okay. You, you, I don't want to think about what kind of, you know, rewiring your brain is going to walk away from. Cause when people talk about having a, a bad trip that, you know, they don't come back from like, I can see that happening in that situation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's one of the things about uh, setting and mindset, you know, are, are a huge uh, aspect to that. And unfortunately, people have kind of, I think, uh, uh, adopted these things as party drugs. But I think we're going to see uh, a lot change. Um, you mentioned the two that are going to be the at the at the very forefront of this um, psilocybin and um, MDMA are they're they're going to get uh, approval and they're going to uh, you know they'll be taken over by the pharmaceutical companies but um you know they're gonna you know it'll be real real medicine um you know that's coming away from these these substances for people who you know are working through emotional and and mental ptsd and a, a lot of different things and if it can hey if it can help people and it has uh you know, I don't know what what the process to uh, make a make it into a pill is like, but um, if they can manage to do this without the um, side effects of you know some of these other um, serotonin you know based uh, substances that are currently in use by doctors, um, you know, I'm I'm all for it. You know, what whatever will help people is 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 kind of how I feel about it. So. Um, you touched on a couple on, on something else there. Um, you mentioned very briefly a while back UFOs about all the all the UFO stuff coming out. And then I also noticed that in your movie you have. I, well, I don't know if you do, but I kind of perceived it as a little bit of a play with uh, alternate universes, alternate dimensions. Um, and so, like, I just, I just have to ask: Are, are do you, do you follow the the whole UFO? Is that a of of interest? And and what are your thoughts on it? If so, so uh, it's more like the newsfeed for UFOs. Follow me; like it, it pops up on my newsfeed enough 
to where I guess, you know, there's somewhat of an interest, but it's like, I don't uh, seek out and watch documentaries uh, about UFOs. And um, yeah, so it's something that I think from all of my uh, searches online, you know, it's, there's this uh, joke that says like, hey, CIA, I'm not a serial killer. I'm not psychotic. I'm a liar. <laughs> right. So um, a lot of the subject matter that I come up with, you know, that dovetails with the orange genre and um, science fiction. Yeah, there is a, a lot of stuff that I look up. So I'm used to seeing stuff to where you have someone with their iPhone down in like Brazil and you have a very peculiar, you know, set of lights in the sky and all of a sudden they, you know, rotate and come over here very quickly and then it drops 200 feet and then it, you know, goes up and vanishes in less than like two seconds. So I'm like, yeah, what was that? But um, it, it hasn't really provoked me to go in depth on researching it and making sense of it. Gotcha. Yeah. The way I, I just, uh, when you threw it out there, I didn't know if you maybe had went through and read the whole Pentagon release papers or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Um, so tell me a little bit, you know, before, before we, as we, before I let you go today, um, tell me a little bit, let's talk a little bit about your writing process. Like if you, if you don't care, like what's, what's your writing process when you sit down and you've got maybe just a, a general idea for, for, uh, a movie or a film. Um, what do you do? What's that process like getting that down on paper and then kind of, you know, fleshing it out until it becomes, you know, that finished product that you can go out and actually execute with. Right. So my writing process is actually very uh, spontaneous and just about every idea I come up with, um, I put it on my phone. Um, I, I go into notes and there have been, multiple times that I would go to the gym and, you know, I've been athletic my entire life. So warming up on the treadmill, that's, I think that's where I meditate because I've done it for decades doing the warm ups where I don't even think about it. So I'm just going and my mind wanders. And that's when I call it my, my flash of inspiration, right? I just have um, the entire idea, like this is it. So all of a sudden I have to stop the treadmill as I'm walking home. Um, I'm on, on my notes, just putting as much of it down because it, it hits me in such a, in such a way that it's literally a race against time to try and get every detail on paper. So I put it on the notes, I get home and then I open notes on my computer and then I just copy and paste all of that. And like, um, I typically jam out in a live Google document because then I, I can invite some people and I, I can put pictures on it and uh, links to whatever. So I do that and just put as much of the framework down as possible. And um, once that happens, I, I notice that the next day I wake up, I'm like, I, I'm exhausted. Like it was such a, um, well, like back to taking MDMA, like when you take it, Uh, it releases all of your endorphins so back to your body desperately wanting to you know it's a survival machine and it wants to have that balance well now it takes a few days for it to you know uh, kind of spool back up so i think when i when i have that wave hit it's such a wave of excitement and i get so into it the next day i wake up and i'm foggy 
like, uh, you know, I need an extra cup of coffee, at least one and got to shake the cobwebs out. Um, But then as far as my writing process, um, yeah, so I have the gist of what I'm doing. And there is a term called the note behind the note. Like this, this is what we're doing, but what are we really doing? So like, yeah, we're doing this scene about uh, flying through a tunnel of light and there is a black hole. But what we're really doing is talking about how humans are searching for, you know, their own explanation on reality. So that's a note behind the note. So I come up with a bunch of stuff like that. And then um, on several scripts, that's when I would uh, call up my my buddy, uh, Joey, and he was actually the writer on The Great Awakening. And I would bring him into the uh, live document once it's in a halfway legible form. And I would explain to him, hey, this is what I came up with. And this is what I want to do with it. And here are a couple things that have to be in and here's a couple unfinished ideas so i'd love for you to you know kind of um work with me and let let's you know here's how it goes because it's like the workflow is like nothing short of madness like (laughs) so and and joey is such an amazing guy to where he he's never once complained about anything but i know he's like what the hell, man? You, you gotta, you gotta make sense of what you're doing. Cause like, I'll send him a thought, and the next paragraph of that thought now turns into a script, and then that script goes into um, like a YouTube link that you have to watch a minute forty five seconds, and then this is happening. This is how you know I I want this transition to look. That's gonna like it. So it's it's all 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 over the place. So you know. For me now, you know, put all of that down and then try and make it something halfway legible to where it's not like you're reading code, you know. So I was gonna say it sounds sounds a little bit like a puzzle he gets to put together. Oh, it very much <laughs> is. Um, yeah. So it's um bad, but then um my my wife, she's taught me a few tricks of the trade. So now um, you know, I can take the the post-its and put it on the wall and like okay every character and then you have a post-it for their major beat points and then uh it looks like you're doing like a a spy um you know kind of a um i don't know a spy scene where you have like a yard of string going from here to there going all over the place but you just do that to connect these two characters to bridge oh this beat point affects this beat point so you take yarn and do it so I've been introduced to the way you're supposed to do it, but to me, it's like, yeah, I still kind of reverse my caveman style of just <laughs> absolute insanity and then try to make it into something halfway uh, legible. And then now the uh, no cards come in and that, you know, really looking back and seeing something tangible that uh that that really changed it for me because now that i'm looking back and i'm like oh and i can do this move that there you can do it on a computer screen but it just it changed the experience actually having you know post-it notes next to like a uh index card so yeah when you when you talked about the idea coming to you you know i 
I, I think for a lot of people, there's like a, str- a struggle between, you know, well, I got to put in the work every day and I've got to come up with the idea and then I've got to flush it out and I've got to put in the time and that works for some people. But I, I do know some people that really rely on, you know, like you describe it, that inspiration, it hits you. And then it's like a race to capture as much of what they can remember about that, 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 that thought and that feeling as possible before it vacates them. Because if it's like, it's kind of like, uh, I don't know, wake, waking up and I even do this sometimes, you know, and I'm not like necessarily a creative type, but you know, you'll have, I'll have a thought. And I know that if I don't write it down right now in 30 minutes, I will, I'll, I'll forget about it. Maybe I'll remember it again, but I won't, I won't, I won't write it. If I don't write it down, I know for sure there's a chance I'm not going to remember everything I need to know about it. Do you, do you feel like when those moments of in- inspiration come and you have that, like, spark of genius, you know, for an idea, do you feel like it's like you coming up with it? Or do you feel like it's like, uh, you know, because you were talking about being in sort of that meditative state a little bit, you know, where you're, where you're running and you're sort of in that mind state. Do you think maybe during that state, you're just uh, maybe more opened up to receiving uh, the the ideas of of the universe, like something like some divine muse that's uh, that's that's sending you something. And for that five minutes, you're kind of receptive to it. And then after that, your mind's going to close back up and it's going to be like back to normal human worrying about this and that again. That that's a very interesting way to put it. And uh, I do enjoy uh, uh, thinking of it that way simply because I don't know where the ideas come from and I, I can't make sense of it to where it's like one of them is um, a zombie script that this one, you know, it's, um, you know, uh, a culpable reckoning. It's uh, about this guy um, who, who feels like he could have done more to save some people that died. Now, He's also having to confront uh, death that's at his doorstep. And then, so it's, yeah, like the, the stories that uh, I come up with, it's interesting because I never sit down and say, all right, I'm going to write a script. I'm going to make a movie. And it, it doesn't happen for me. <laughs> it's whenever I'm just walking around, like there's a one time that uh, I woke up I woke up and put notes down of a dream I had mm. and the dream I had tell, tell me this is in a movie script. So I woke up and took down the notes that um, like some friends, you know, a very traditional uh, horror thing that they're invited to a house. Um, you, you know, it's like a, somebody wins a contest and you have like uh, four nights and three days, you know, in this crazy, mansion out the country so they go they meet the homeowner and you know as as the night goes they're having fun but then uh, somebody gets sick and basically the the plot of the movie is that the homeowner is actually an arms dealer that's testing out a, a type of um nerve gas that will make people rage out so um but uh to prove uh, to the sellers that his product works. Um, he's also injected himself with the, uh, um, not, not the vaccine, but the, um, 
like a deterrent as well. So, like somebody's uh, in the bathroom washing their hands, and then you can hear the gas coming into the room, and it makes that person turn, you know, homicidal, violent, and start freaking out. But then they walk, they run right past the homeowner and begin attacking people that they uh, came to the house uh. with. So it, it turns into like you know a survive the night type of thing, and how do you do it? And then uh, eventually the uh, the homeowner uh, they find a way to you know have the gas actually affect him and he's in his big fancy walk-in closet that has a bunch of mirrors so as he's looking around he keeps seeing himself so he's like attacking the mirror and as he's doing that he's cutting himself to shreds and that's how he ends up dying so that was a dream i i had and woke up and came up with like the bone structure of what this movie script could be. And so I'm like that. I wasn't thinking of that when I went to bed, but I woke up and all of a sudden it, there it is. So. Yeah, that's sound, that, that sounds like a movie for sure. It's uh, like a targeted uh, agent that can, uh, you know, only, only is only only affects certain people that don't have the, uh, the, the little extra cure or whatever it is. It's definitely sounds like a exactly. Mission Impossible type movie. <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, so back to it, I'm like, where does that thought come from? Um, I, I think a lot of it comes with me trying to be in tune with what's in the ether. Uh, back to the documentary of Nightmares in Red, White, Blue. Yeah, you know, Stephen King, George A. Romero, and all of these iconic horror people saying they're making sense of what was happening you know, around them at that time. So for me, if I go back on my scripts and reread some of them, I'm I'm now making sense that, oh, that was me journalizing in a creative way what was happening around me. So it's like, you know, I have a splash of wherever it, it comes from. It, it, you know, could be from something higher up. I, I'm not sure if, you know, a higher being would be like, let's give Bo a an awesome movie idea, <laughs> you know, I'm like that. But, um, but with that being said, I'm like, I don't know where else it, it does come from, but, you know, so it's a mixture of that flash of inspiration mixed with, you know, how I'm making sense and trying to, you know, reach into the ether and pull stuff out. Yeah, no, I find the creative process, everybody's creative process is definitely different. And I, I find it interesting to, to hear about how people approach these these things. And so I appreciate you sharing it with me. Um, you know, uh, the movie is is definitely very interesting. I encourage people to to check it out. Um, you know, it'll it'll let you think about a few things. Um, that's for sure, as, as you kind of go through it. And it's I think a definitely a it feels like a good a good movie to come out of COVID. I, I hope we're coming out of it. We'll see. We'll see. I know that it keeps creeping or creeping up, but um, I think we're to the point where uh, life will start to go on now. So, um, out of COVID and into monkeypox. <laughs> yeah. Well, it might be the sequel. <laughs> 
Yeah, let's hope not. At least it's, um, uh, you know, at least it's uh, supposedly uh, tran transmitted uh, in a different manner, uh, a little more controlled, uh, hopefully. So um, hopefully it's not a, as big of an issue, but we need something to rile up the news cycle, right? And get people to tune in yeah. to, to all the news channels. So <laughs> monkeypox it is. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I want to be respectful of your time. I, I know uh, that you've got a lot on your plate, so I, I want to be respectful and I really appreciate you coming in. Again, I encourage people to check out the movie Great Awakening. Um, and then before we go, you know, tell people where they can find the movie, tell them where they can follow you online and, and all that good stuff. Definitely. So um, please check out the, the Great Awakening. It's uh, available currently on Tubi. And then if you go to thegreatawakening.news, that's the, the website that gives you a lot of links, uh, previews, uh, an intro to the cast, and just kind of uh, who we are that, uh, that brought it to life. And then um, for me, if you want the, the quickest response from me, just go on Instagram and go to at uh, Mr. Bo Roberts. So M-R-B-O-R. And then... I should pop up. And um, yeah, with that being said, I would love for any type of feedback. So if you like the movie, if you didn't like the movie, if you thought this or disagreed with this or, you know, just whatever it is, because, you know, we started uh, with me talking about being an athlete. So for me, I'm very athletic, uh, athletically minded <laughs> in, the, in the sense of, whatever feedback is if it's good or bad that's something i can use to sharpen my tool kind of improve on the next one and just do it so you know people that love horror movies or um or science fiction because um it seems like this movie is leaning more in a in a science fiction uh fashion that has horrific aspects to it so on the scary scale i'd say it's a c maybe c plus so not too bad, but um, yeah, that, that's it. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't say I wouldn't say scary, but uh, intense. Like it's 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 a little intense yeah. and unnerving. You know, it leaves you leaves you feeling a little bit of anxious. I should say, um, would be a good way to put it. Well, awesome. Well, thank you again for for joining me this afternoon. I greatly appreciate it. Yeah, uh, great chatting with you, Matt. Thank you for joining another episode of the Evolved Idiots. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe and be sure to follow us on social media. Until next time, peace and love to the people of the planet Earth.